So welcome to this John Richardson and the Future Not special in which we are joined by two exceptional guests. However, I, as John Richardson, must say every week we are joined by two exceptional guests and we are, as ever, in the company of Mark Stevenson and Ed Gillespie. Hello, gentlemen. I, I worry that you've demoted us to guests. <laughs> um, I, well, I didn't, I, 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 did I miss a memo? Because I thought it was like a show we did together as co-hosts. But, but is this your celeb ego suddenly just going, you know what, New Year, I'm going to lay it out. I'm the big comedy celebrity and you are my guests and just, just back in your box, future types. Oh, anyone who's listened to this show knows I'm not the comedy celebrity. <laughs> um, I, it was more, you know, I got into it and I thought, we're going to build this one as lucky we've got with us. And then I thought it does a disservice to you two because, you know, you're here every week and uh, you you should get a build up like that. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to start again um, and we'll go with it. Welcome to this John Richardson and the Future Not special in which at last we have two people who deserve your attention. <laughs> congratulations to all listeners who've made it this far listening to the blathering crap of the two <laughs> Uh, co-hosts of this podcast who join me now, Mr. Thingamibob Stevens and Ed Watts-His-Chops. Hello. <laughs> that better? Do you feel on a par now? Oh, I feel, I'm suitably humbled. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much need for introduction to this podcast. This is a one-off special. Uh, we recorded this interview uh, just before Christmas, it has to be said, due to diary constraints of... Our guest, which is what happens when you have exceptionally busy and important people on. Having listened back to it, I think we can all three of us say you're in for an absolute treat this week. You can tell it's a good interview when basically we all shut up and let me <laughs> yeah. speak. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes. That was the thing I really enjoyed about this episode is not having to hear you two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you what, you can really feel lockdown can't you <laughs> first lockdown this podcast was our treat it was our chance to talk to people we hadn't seen all week lockdown two having been working together for a year now this is just more family isn't it who's turned up those two <laughs> bollocks christ there's football on as well <laughs> but we're all on our best behavior here aren't we because we're slightly showing off and in awe of the people we're with it is uh uplifting is frank it becomes at one point a conversation about art and what art can be and how it can best achieve its goals it goes very many places it's a joy to listen to and i hope you enjoy it this is john richardson the future notes meet brian eno and james thornton so anyone who heard our first series episode on climate change knows that at the end we discuss what are the possible solutions and where the skies are bluer and brighter. And uh, we mentioned client earth and today we will be drilling down probably isn't the right expression to use when you're talking about combating climate <laughs> change, but we will be exploring more deeply the work of client earth. And I'm delighted to say we have two globally significant figures with us to discuss that and i will hand over to mark and ed to give you the more details yes so uh, our first so we're doing a double header we're going to interview them both at the same time something new for us so uh, so hold on to your hats but uh i had the great pleasure of introducing james thornton so james thornton is the ceo of client earth and if you haven't heard of client earth they are the weirdest of things they are both a law firm and a charity 
And they take the earth as their client and they have had enormous success in moving the climate change agenda forward. James is also uh, a published poet and a Zen Buddhist. So we're hoping for some extreme wisdom from him. And he is joined by our other guest who Ed is going to introduce. And I have the enormous privilege of introducing Brian Eno, the self-styled non-musician, um, possibly one of the most influential uh, producers of all time and various different strains of music. Uh, lots of bands you will have heard of, including Mark's favourite Coldplay. Brian is also perhaps lesser known for his pioneering work in piano tennis, uh, and his role as Father Brian Eno in Irish priest-based comedy, Father Ted. But here we're going to be talking about his role and his philanthropy and his instigation and inspiration around climate change. So welcome, both of you gentlemen. Hello. Thank you. Shall we begin at the beginning then of Client Earth, I think, because to most people listening, it, it's a thing they won't have heard of and conceived that, that lawyers would band together and fight on behalf of the climate. So James, perhaps could you talk about the, the very inception and where it came from? Sure. So uh, we started uh, Client Earth in uh, 2007 uh, in the UK, uh, and it's now grown to uh, a global entity. So we started with a London office, and now it's uh, Brussels and Berlin and Warsaw and Madrid, Beijing, uh, and soon to be Singapore and LA, uh, with uh, about 220 people and 110 of them lawyers from around 26 countries. So a very international crew. And the inspiration was because uh, law has a tremendous power compacted inside it. You know, it offers all kinds of tools uh, to encourage or sometimes force uh, society to go where you want it to go. And uh, I learned this style of using law in the United States, where it was done for the environment uh, from the 70s. But uh, in, in the early 2000s, when I, I came to the UK, I noticed that uh, lawyers weren't organized like this, as uh, there wasn't any group of lawyers uh, working as a charity. Perhaps there were obvious reasons that go along with people's idea about lawyers in general. But uh, so I, I set up this very small group, very small at the beginning. It started with uh, just three of us, and then it's grown and grown and grown. And the idea of being a charity is that you can then really take the earth and everyone who lives on her as your client. So you don't just sit in your office and wait for people to come to you with typical problems that people bring to lawyers. But instead, you go out and meet people, research, talk to scientists, see about the world, and you say, okay, if climate change is a big problem, how can I use the law to stop it? And how do you interview your client when the client is a planet? I mean, it's not as you say, it's not like they sort of pop around and uh, sit down and say, I've got this problem with my, my, my estranged wife or something like that. You know, they, <laughs> yeah. what, what is the process of, of deciding, you know, uh, getting to know your client and what does she want and how can you help her? How do you decide which cases to bring? Yeah, well, that's a very astute question because if you're a lawyer, you do have to know your client and you do have to interview her. And uh, the answer with uh, the way we use law for the planet and, as I say, everyone who lives on her is science. So science is the answer. And, um, you know, if... You want to speak with the earth. Uh, the earth speaks to you through the grammar of science. So it all starts with talking to scientists, uh, reading a lot of science, and uh, understanding what the science is saying about what's needed. And then you try and capture the science into policy. Uh, and then you go to parliaments or congresses and try and convince politicians to take that policy embodying the science and put it into law. Then you go to regulatory agencies and try and get them to enforce the law and make it work. And when that doesn't uh, work successfully uh, and, say, countries or companies don't follow the law, then you go to court and, uh, and enforce it. 
the amazing thing about that sort of charitable approach as well is that you're not in hock to any sort of specific agenda, are you? Even even sort of well-intentioned consultancies are still sort of towing a particular corporate line that their client has decreed. I guess the question is, how do you then prioritize, you know, building on what Mark was saying, how do you prioritize which parts of your client brief to focus on? Uh, is it just based on the, the specific urgency of the science? Well, that's a lot of it. Uh, but but you're right, there, there isn't any particular brief except whatever we think will be most helpful for, for people in nature. Uh, and then how do you decide it? Well, as I said, you start with the science, but uh, then your resources are inherently very limited. I mean, you're a charity, you have a, a few hundred people, uh, and it's a, a big set of problems out there. So what we always look for is um, a genuinely key problem, say climate change or air pollution, and then an area where uh, in that domain you can see a, a positive solution to a problem. Uh, so you, you walk into a, imagine a positive space, and you walk in there and say, we could achieve that if... And then how do you use legal tools to answer that if? So you want always to be very high leverage. So when scientists talked to me at the very beginning of, of setting up Client Earth before I opened the doors, uh, I said, so if respecting climate change, I could do one thing, uh, what would it be? And they were very clear. They said, if you can just stop a, a new generation of coal-fired power stations from being built in Europe, that's your number one ambition. So, okay, I said, we had three people at that point, I said, and we will stop a new generation of coal-fired power stations. And, and, and so, it, so it happened. And that you have done that, and we'll get into that story later, but let's bring in uh, Brian here. So, Brian, you, you got involved really very early on. You've been with Client Earth pretty much since their inception. How did you find out about them? And, and um, you're famous for your oblique strategies. Is Client Earth an oblique strategy? And maybe you can talk to us about what that is. So, yes, so I, I was involved pretty much from the start. It was my friend Emily Young, the sculptor, who said to me, oh, you should hear about this. We had been talking, Emily and I had been talking quite a lot about what we could do about the climate crisis. And I had sort of courted various um, organizations and was slightly skeptical about many of them, not, not because I distrusted the intentions of the people involved, but because I thought there was either insufficient clarity about the projects that they they wanted to set up, uh, and I had seen quite a few very well intentioned, look good on paper projects fail, and heard about other failures. But also, I thought, you know, how much time do I have in my life, and how much money do I have in my bank account, and what's the most I can do with it? So, this question of leverage, as um, James wrongly pronounces as leverage. Um, <laughs> um, I've, I've only lived here for 25 years. I'll catch on, Brian. You know. Yeah, you'll okay. catch. Don't worry. <laughs> this, this was very crucial to me, leverage, that I wanted the maximum return for whatever effort and money I put into the thing. And it seemed to me that that meant working at the deepest structural level that you could work at. And that's where the law is. You know, the law is the sort of fundamental social consensus. That, that's what that represents. And it represents a set of techniques of enforcing that. You know, one of the other problems with so many of the other projects I'd looked at was that there was no guarantee that they could continue for very long. They were, they were quite easy to destabilize and to, to stop. And I thought... The only place where that isn't the case is really in the law. Um, once something is law, it's very hard to, to dismantle it. It, has, it therefore has a sort of 
sort of inertia that um, seemed to me important. So that, that was how I started out thinking about client earth. And I have to say, I think it's the best sort of investment of my time <laughs> that I've ever made, really. The results have been startlingly good and continue to unfold in that way. And we're now, there seems to be quite a big momentum gathering. As, as regards oblique strategies, this, for, for people who don't know what that mysterious word <laughs> means, um, this was a set of cards that a painter friend of mine and I put together about nearly 50 years ago now, which was intended to help in creative situations where there was a kind of a dilemma or a block. They're sort of upsetting strategies. They break you, they push you out of the rut that you're in and make you take a different perspective. I guess in some ways you'd say client earth is the opposite of an oblique strategy. It's a very solid and clever approach to this fundamental problem. Though within client earth, there have been some very, very clever and very oblique strategies of ways of getting a result. I mean, the best story is probably one James should tell about how we stopped a very large coal-fired power station in Poland recently, because it's such a good story. Sure. Uh, well, and, and this was a, a clever idea uh, by one of our young lawyers. And I've loved the fact that uh, so many young people have uh, joined uh, me in this enterprise. And what's great about them is that uh, some of them are so young that they don't know that anything is impossible. And therefore, they <laughs> go out and do it. <laughs> and uh, So nobody had ever done this one before. So we were trying to stop what the Polish government was calling the last new coal-fired power station in Europe, sort of a, a backhanded compliment to our work, I think. And um, the usual ways of doing it weren't going to work. So we said, okay, what can we do? And we decided to use uh, corporate law, simple, basic corporate law, and uh, we bought shares. And then we commissioned an economic study from a, uh, a very, very good group called Carbon Tracker. And the economics showed that this coal-fired power station was a bad investment because you would make a better return if you built renewable energy, even in Poland. So that was quite clear. We took it to the company, and the company decided to go ahead with the coal plant anyway. The Polish government owned like 52% of the shares. So having bought shares ourselves, we then sued. And we sued <laughs> the officers and directors of the company personally. Now, that's the worst nightmare of any officer and director. That's what you worry about at three o'clock in the morning, personally sued. And the charge was that you have broken your basic duty to us uh, as directors because we're investors in the company and you're knowingly making a bad investment. You have a duty of care, the most basic corporate duty to shareholders. And our argument was simply, you are ruining our 30 euro investment. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we meant it seriously. Now they, uh, I've said that sentence seriously myself many times. There's, there's <laughs> no limit to the things I won't complain about if I've only spent a quid. There you go. Well, it, that, that was the ticket that we, that we had. And uh, interestingly, the Polish press, which had been very, very anti-us uh, in the beginning, took the case very seriously. They didn't say crazy environmentalists sue energy company. They said, investors question the wisdom of investing in coal. And again and again, that's how it came up. And uh, in court, uh, we won. Uh, the judge agreed with us and uh, struck down the project. And the lovely tagline to the whole story is that the next day, the share price went up almost 
<laughs> that's brilliant that's brilliant because the, the, the yeah. key thing there isn't it is like as you say it's 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 oblique and lateral and it's using the force of the law uh against people who often think or feel that they're above it um and i think that's that's incredible and i know from my work at greenpeace and we've obviously worked a lot with client earth you know yeah. when you try when you try and take a lateral strategy so let's say we want to basically rid our streets of the internal combustion engine uh, and then the way that we do that is obviously working with people like client earth to focus on air quality and the fact that the government is essentially in breach of its own responsibility to protect its citizens from the pollution that's killing them and you know we we uh, in a previous episode we looked at the future of protest and uh, john Jordan quoted David Graeber saying, actually, governments don't like it when we get civil disobedience. But governments also get very uncomfortable when the law is used against them, don't they? Yes. I mean, that's the point. The law has traditionally, or at least throughout the late 20th century, been the weapon of the rich. Yeah. And it's been the way that um, we the rest of us were kept under control so it's it's particularly satisfying to see to see it into <laughs> other hands i mean that that particular story of the 60 or 70 euros that it actually cost to do that is i think is brilliant you know we were talking about a power station that would have cost many billions of euros to build and uh, it was derailed by putting a sixpence on the railway line you know that was the effect of it <laughs> but there's something very inspiring about the way you've done that as well is it's it's also a, a template and a framework for other people because we, we talked to john jordan last week who was on the site you know he lives now on a site that wasn't built but their, their victory was it was very hard fought and it was fought with blood sweat and tears and you know breaking the law not just using the law and obviously that is it's no less inspiring that they had a victory but what it does mean is when you ask people to do that again what you're saying is right let's pick up tools again let's go through all that again what your victory says is this now is applicable all over the world look at what we've done and this is this is a fight that you know you can win and you can cite us as an example of where it's been done yeah, and is it not now the case, James, I heard that, because you've taken, I think, the UK government to court so many times, and because you have the law on your side, essentially, you, you win, because you're brilliant lawyers, and you're just saying, well, this is the law, and you, you kind of have to deal with it. And by the way, you wrote it. So <laughs> um, is, is it now the case that sort of, you know, the government now, or government sort of phone you up and go, look, before we end up in court with you, can you tell us what we need to do? <laughs> are, are you now sort of advising them before you end up in court against them? Yes, actually, some sometimes uh, an example uh, would be uh, in, in in Poland. So uh, we had a minister come to us and say, uh, "Well, you know, you've you've beaten us so many times, and you've beaten so many companies uh, in Poland so many times. We understand there's going to be a lot of EU money coming out in the Green Deal uh, to help transition away from coal. We've looked around the country, and we've seen uh, that there's nobody we can trust to give us." Uh, the real advice on how to create a transition uh, into clean energy, except you. Would you advise us? <laughs> and that, that was gobsmacking. Yeah. I also want to actually talk about advice to perhaps uh, people that might seem, you know, odd to the listener. Um, you've done some very interesting work in China. And mm. uh, I, I wonder if you could tell us about that, because it's a fantastic story and not one that's, that's largely told over here in the West. No, uh, in the West, I mean, we tend to get uh, quite a lot of negative stories about China, quite understandable, you know, about human rights in particular. But uh, the story that isn't told about China is that the, the Chinese are hell-bent on cleaning up uh, the environment. Uh, and uh, and stopping climate change. And it's for reasons of uh, enlightened self-interest, really. And I was uh, 
invited in in 2014 to meet members of the Supreme Court of China and other senior officials to advise them on writing a law to allow citizen groups, Chinese environmental groups, to bring cases against polluting companies, including those owned by the government. And uh, they approached me and said, you're the only person that we've found who's done this uh, on two continents, Europe and the United States. So you must know what a system should look like that delivers results. That's what we're looking for. How should we do it? I said, wow, what a question. So I went and um, I gave them a seminar and I said, you have to do six things. But before I get there, I just want to tell you uh, how amazing it is that you're doing this uh, in China, about which I knew little at that point, really, other than what I read in the, in the press. Uh, I said, this is great. So Chinese environmental groups are going to be able to sue government-owned companies. This is revolutionary. And the uh, the senior Supreme Court judge stopped me and said, uh, Mr. Thornton, uh, revolutionary is a big word for us here. (laughs) 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 And uh, I laughed, of course, and uh, I realized at that moment, oh, I could love these guys. Uh, And indeed, what happened was uh, I gave them all this advice on how to set it up. And then I went back three months later to see how it went. And I met in the Supreme Court building with these very senior Supreme Court judges. And the same guy who had made the joke said, uh, by the way, before we get into our meeting, uh, I want to let you know that everything you gave us met our needs so much, we took it and wrote it directly into the Chinese law. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I put my hand on my heart, uh, something I don't do that often, and said, uh, Your Honor, not every meeting starts like this for me. (laughs) And and he said, okay, uh, now on to the meeting. Uh, What do you want to do next for China? Uh, (laughs) Was there a moment, James, where you're sitting there going like, is this me? Am I I here? Is it what? No, this can't be. I must be dreaming this. Yes, I felt I'd gone through some other, some portal, you know, and I was in an alternate universe. Absolutely. Uh, But you have to think on your feet and be entrepreneurial. So I said, well, uh, last time I was here, I learned that you had just appointed 3,000 judges to decide environmental cases, unlike any place else in the world. It's, it's an amazing thing. So, uh, uh, And they will need training. This is all new. So the senior Supreme Court judge said, you could not be more right. Will you train them? And I, of course, had never trained a judge in my life. But again, you have to be entrepreneurial. So I said, sure, where shall I start? And he said, with us. And I said, with the Supreme Court? And he said, yes. And then you think, gee, uh, OK, uh, right. Um, I said, well, what do you want to learn? And he said, we want to know about the best climate change cases in the world because you're an expert in this. And I said, well, gladly, but why do you want to know about the best climate change cases in the world? And he said, and this answer, again, blew me away. He said, uh, we want to know about them because we want to decide some of the best climate change cases in the world to stop climate change. Now, this is the Supreme Court of China, you know, uh, and truly, I don't have conversations like that uh, with the Supreme Court of uh, any country in Europe or let alone the United States. So that was pretty surprising. And then indeed, we've been training judges. And then the prosecutors came to us and said, uh, under that law, you helped write. We got the right to sue the government for the first time on behalf of citizens, on behalf of the people, as, as they say, uh, when, say, the government uh, agencies in Yunnan are not stopping air pollution. But we've never sued the government. You sue governments all the time. Hmm. Would you train us to sue the Chinese government? And again, I felt like I was, you know, I'd gone through a portal. So here the federal prosecutors in China are saying, could you help train us to sue the Chinese government? And again, you say yes. And then we brought in prosecutors from around the world, you know, UK, Australia, every place, and did these training sessions. 
And uh, in the couple of years since that all started, those prosecutors have initiated well over 100,000 environmental cases. That's Uh, insane. It's amazing. So this gives you an indication of how really serious they are about cleaning things up. They had fairly decent laws, uh, but but they just weren't You wrote them, James, so you would say. Uh, No, no. no. (laughs) I helped on that particular one. And then we're advising on other laws, yeah. And uh, for example, they're just about to, uh, they've just announced they want to do a new climate change law to meet the promise that uh, President uh, Xi made to become net zero carbon before 2060. So uh, they will need a whole set of laws to do that because it's a huge change. And hopefully we'll be able to help them with that. This is why China has 5,000 years of continuous civilization, isn't it? And the, yeah. you know, they were writing uh, and doing calligraphy when we were still painting our bums blue and poking each other with sharp sticks. That's just you, Ed. That's just you. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what, what, I, what I'm feeling there, James, is also, you know, a lot of people say, you know, particularly in that civil disobedience piece we were touching on before, you know, if the law is an ass, it's your moral duty to break it. But perhaps... It's the case now that if the world is acting like an ass, it's our moral duty to uphold the law and fully. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, uh, parts of it uh, work wonderfully in that way. And at the same time, uh, looking ahead, because this is a future program, you know, the uh, if you did enforce, first of all, you have to enforce all the existing laws. Uh, we're very far from it, and it would change the world. Uh, but then we also need to look uh, ahead and say, you know, how do we need to evolve our laws so we can actually really get to net zero uh, emissions and how do we really save nature and how do we really protect people's health. So, you know, uh, we're thinking of what are the elements of environmental law 2.0? And that's interestingly what the Chinese will be working on with this new climate law. You know, how do we actually make those fundamental differences? I mean, we haven't really touched on, you know, the moment in time in which we find ourselves, because, you know, that's obviously part of our first question is how fucked are we? Um, And Brian, you know, a lot of your work, whether it's the the Long Now Foundation, you know, the the generative music, the video paintings, uh, the wonderful light boxes that you, you showed me the other week at your place. You know, it's all about infinite possibilities. Uh, and, and I was thinking uh, of your work in that regard because I was just finished reading Toby Ord, the moral philosopher's book, The Precipice, which is about existential risk and the future of humanity. And to what extent do you think, I mean, you touched on this when you said, you know, what can I do with the time I have left and the money I have in the bank to make a real difference? Do you think or feel we're at such a critical time when the potential of all those infinite possibilities is actually in the balance? Without doubt, yes. I I mean, I think we're at a sort of point of civilizational precarity, if you like, that we've never been at before. I mean, there have been, there have been all sorts of, of course, floods and plagues and what have you in the world, but I don't think anything as big as this has ever threatened us. And it is it is very, very, very big. So we have to really start thinking about the longer term future, which is something we've got out of the habit of. Mm. You know, it used to be the case that our ancestors would plant forests and groves of olives and so on, with a view to their being useful to their grandchildren or their great grandchildren. And we tend not to do that now. We now are so technically sophisticated that we think we'll deal with any problem as it comes up. Mm. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll invent a way out of the difficulty. Well, we've left it a bit late for this one. <laughs> you know, and the problem is so so huge and so multi-dimensional, and there are so many vectors in it that the the danger, of course, is that they start 
acting synergistically together. Mm. So we get outcomes that are far beyond any that we had ever dreamed of. So we have to start thinking longer term. We have to start acting as though there might be a human civilization still in a thousand years' time or 10,000 years' time. And what condition will it be in if we carry on like we are now? Mm. If humans are still around, what will what world will they be living in? Mm. I mean, we naturally think about that with our children and our grandchildren, but what about future generations beyond those? So that gives us that makes me think: How do we change the way people think about things? What is it that changes people's minds? Now, normally, because we're Western, you know, intellectual people who've had a decent education and so on often we think what changes people's minds is evidence and reason mm. that is actually very rarely the case i think in fact you can see how rarely that is the case if you look at the last few years that evidence counts for very little what counts is what people somehow come to believe mm. and what world picture they have and so who deals with all of that kind of information. We know where you get the science from, and we know that it doesn't make much difference to most people. Most people don't read the science, but somehow they form opinions. So what, what forms people's opinions about things? And in fact, what forms people's opinions about the really big things in their lives? And it turns out to be hunches, gossip, local prejudices, and experience. And part of people's experience is their experience of art. And that is a very important, it's an underrated part, I think, um, because it's in, it's in art that we learn how to, how to love things. You know, our whole experience of this British thing of landscape is largely produced from British art. We continually represent ourselves with things that we find beautiful and that we find a reason to love. And if, if anything is going to save the world, it's us falling in love with it, us starting to think this is so precious. This is the only point in the universe that we know has any life in it, that we know has any intelligence. How awful that we're about to squander it, that we're about to lose it. And I think um, we start to get those kinds of feelings, not so much through rational discussion and through um, reading the science and so on, but through our experience of our own feelings about things. And our feelings are very much conditioned by, by art. I have this expression that I use sometimes, children learn through play and adults play through art. Art is adult play and it serves the same function as play does for children. It's the way we experiment with the world, we try out, we imagine different versions of it and we see how we feel about those different versions. That, that's the important thing, that we have visceral reactions to these things. And those reactions, I think, are what condition what we then go on to do and what we go on to believe. Yeah, I have to. That makes me think of two things, Brian. The first is um, 
that is one of the reasons that Ed and I don't like being called futurists is because that that whole area is, is is populated by what we would call techno optimists. You know, kind yeah. of we'll invent our way out of it, as you say. And they, they don't really have any fundamental understanding. Many futurists of, of the history of how we got to where we are, and actually, most of our problems are not about technology; they're about ethics and morals and governance and all those kind of things. Are, are yes. always, and also when you were talking about art, you know, I have this phrase I use, which is the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided, which leads me on to my the most important question of this podcast which is about prog rock now um, <laughs> uh, we have an ongoing love of prog rock on this podcast ed, all of us all of us Ed and John are enormous fans of prog, and uh, I'm in a prog band as well. And you've been around the world of prog as well. Um, how can prog rock save the world? Now, I want to ask this question because David Gilmore, who many people will know as the uh, the guitarist of Pink Floyd, is also one of the biggest patrons of Client Earth. Was that your doing? And uh, is it true that basically prog rock artists are the best people and we will save the world as proggers and the other art forms will just have to catch up? Well, I should first of all say that it wasn't my doing. I think it, it may have come about as a part of a conversation I had with a friend of ours called Rosie Boycott. Oh, yes. I, I had told her about um, Client Earth and how successful I felt it was. And um, not long after that, she had a conversation with David who was saying, I'd like to put some money into an environmental organization that works. And I, I gather she then mentioned client earth to him so i so i may have had a small, <laughs> small finger in the pie but um i think it was completely his decision and a very very generous one indeed um made a very big difference to client earth so now i might disappoint you by declaring my own feelings about prog rock oh please oh, don't no, God, i'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> the most important thing about prog rock for me was that it showed me what kind of music i didn't want to make oh no <laughs> you, that's just that's but you are you oh let, this is don't, you, don't you realize how important that is for something to I often said that about Frank Zappa, that he was a very important person in my musical development because he did so well something that I then realized I didn't want to do. Right. He, he did that experiment so well, and, and it came out, and I thought, yes, that's exactly where I don't want to go. Oh, music. that's wonderful. That's just so what do you know? I've got a friend who is obsessed with Frank Dapper. I'm gonna to have to phone straight after this conversation. <laughs> Careful, there'll be death threats. Describe yeah. his describe his entire body of work as an experiment into something that we didn't want to do. Oh. <laughs> I'd like to pick up on a couple of threads there, Brian, as well, because you know, when you're talking about that long-term thinking, um, I don't know if you've come across the work of Tyson Junker Porter, whose book Sand Talk talks about the fact that we're at the start of a sort of thousand year undertaking because that's literally how long it will take for the old growth forests to come back because obviously uh -huh. it's not just about planting a tree it's about bringing that climax community back to uh, realization and that and that takes hundreds of years um mm. and and that notion that you know the planet doesn't want to be saved or even changed and I, you know, I've, I've said that a lot. I said, you know, the planet wants to be loved. I remember having a quote on my office wall 20 years ago, which was from Thomas Mann, which says, art is to the community what the dream is to the individual. Oh, yes. and, and I used to give talks to artists on climate change uh, about 15 years ago. And I used to get quite a lot of pushback 
But people saying, you know, we don't want to be didactic and we don't want to be told what we should be engaging with and communicating. And my response was always like, this is emerging and evolving into the biggest existential crisis we've perhaps faced in our in our mm. history and you're querying whether it's inspiring enough or whether it it should be something that artists should embrace i think that situation has changed now but to what to what extent do you think the the world of culture has finally woken up to the enormity of the challenge and and what might we see uh you know unfolding as people really wrangle with that creativity in order to touch people's hearts and guts in a way perhaps they haven't done previously well i think you have to have some sort of understanding of the levels at which art works i mean there are there are obvious ways you can talk about the environment in art you can make songs about um growing trees and so on and so on. That's that's a sort of very straightforward propagandistic, if you like, use of art. But but I think things work on a much deeper level than that. For instance, earlier on you you mentioned my work. I'm I'm not gonna blow my trumpet about it, but I will tell you what I think it's doing. I think what I do is I work with systems and sets of rules that then produce art, if you like. So, so I'm working at a sort of uh, rule level. I'm, I'm trying to make each work a little ecosystem, which has its own sets of rules and balances and probabilities within it, and which makes something that I can't predict. So if you think about that as a paradigm of organization or of governance, compare that to the classical music picture where the whole composition is in the head of the composer and, uh, it's it's sort of set out by him or her and becomes this perfect edifice what i'm not doing that uh, that's that's like architecture and what i'm doing is something like gardening i'm creating a seed of some kind planting it and seeing how it comes out now once people get to understand the idea that creation or creativity or making things is not the process of carrying out already finalized plans and plonking them into the world, but is is the process of starting something and letting it evolve and tweaking the rules so that it evolves better and more humanely or more whatever you want it to be. That That's a different concept of how things come into being. And it calls into question the you know all of the usual things that attach to classical art of the great man who comes up with the great idea and then tells all the underlings how to execute it. This is more a kind of cooperative, ongoing, ecological, cultural, shared way of making something. And I think when people experience things in art, they, at some level, understand how that that piece of art came into being. And it becomes part of their repertoire of how things can come into being. For instance... Sorry, I'm so verbose. This is why I asked you at the beginning how long this is going to be. <laughs> and yet you don't like Prague. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go back to Prague. I'm going to say some nice things about Prague. <laughs> we'll edit those out. Oh, come on. Just so I'll avert the death threats. <laughs> but I think when, when people look at a piece of art, they don't only look at it. They look at how it came into being. That's important in your understanding of something. I mean, you hear jazz differently because you know that these people are making it up on the spot. That's different from what you 
the way you hear classical music. You, you hear things not only for what they are sonically or visually, but for how that you know they came into being. And that conditions your understanding of how that can happen. Anything that is possible in art becomes thinkable in life. When something happens to you in an art experience and you think, wow, that was amazing, another part of you says, and I wonder how I could do that. I wonder how what that means in my life to have a process like that. And of course, you don't, you don't necessarily verbalize those feelings. But I think this, this is the important thing about art, that it works at quite deep levels in your psyche. And, and the nice thing about Prague? The nice thing about Prague is that I do really admire the fact that people decided to set out to make something that broke a lot of rules, that said, why should we use all these structures we've inherited from popular music? Why don't we do something else? I, I like that. Of course, of course I do. That's sort of what I've been doing in a funny way as well. And I, just at the time Prague was big, I hated it. It drove me bloody mad because I saw people... I mean, I have nothing against masturbation, but I don't really... <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to watch people doing it on stage. <laughs> um, I think... The, I, I think uh, one of my favourite... Uh, one of my friends is a guy called John Mitchell, who's a, who's a prog artist, and he says, you have to realise that progressive rock is its own parody, which I think is a really good way of hearing <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but talking about art and, and how it affects people, I want to bring it back to James, because James, you're also a published poet and I'm, I'm really interested in how you're hearing what Brian's saying and how art has affected you do you see client earth as kind of an artistic project in a way well I, I do actually so uh, I mean I see uh, client earth as a, a kind of uh, it combines uh, a conceptual art element with a performance art uh, aspect you know the uh, what we do is uh, look at these very 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 complex sets of rules in many cultures all over the world and you uh, you look through these very complex sets of rules and you say, or I could play with those rules uh, this way. So it, it's a very multidimensional sort of way about thinking about complex sets of rules. And we've used these rules to do things that nobody else has thought of uh, doing before, like using corporate law to stop that uh, coal plant. And that, that gets you to the performative aspect. So you, you do this conceptual play, and it really is very playful, like a novelist or any other creative person, you stare out or through the window at whatever is outside for long periods of time while pieces of the puzzle link up in your mind. And then then you go into action. And uh, the action, again, is, uh, although it may be somewhat like people have done before, it's, it's always a bit different. No one will have done this kind of lobbying or this type of protest or brought this kind of case. So it has both of those. But uh, uh, what I was feeling very much as I was listening to Brian uh, was something I've been thinking for a long time, which is about the the importance of story, which is uh, a form of art. And that I think uh, story is one of those things that uh, the emotions attached to uh, story guides the intellect. Story is the template for uh, ethics uh, and ultimately guides action. And um, you know, I sometimes uh, think of uh, people as uh, that Aristotle got it wrong, and we're not the rational animal. I agree with Brian on that for sure. And Kate Rayworth, who was here a little while ago, uh, we're not a rational animal. We're a storytelling animal, as a storytelling animal, and and a as a as a kind of art. And um, you know, the um, uh, what stories carry uh, 
uh, civilization because we're really talking about saving civilization and mm. creating a new civilization really uh, in order to save the possibility of human civilization. But how do we save civilization? And civilization is really made up of stories. And that's why uh, Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump won. I mean, they told certain kinds of stories. Now, they were not the sort of stories one hopes for in the future because that's not how you're going to save civilization. So what is the story? Uh, and for me, it is something about uh, creating an ecological civilization uh, in which people and nature thrive together. And it's a very positive, positive uh, message, a uh, very positive story. And environmentalists have been quite bad at this. We have been talking, as Brian was saying, in uh, uh, rational arguments and assuming that we were going to convince people if we just bash them over the head with enough data. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it doesn't work. Uh, and that's still, though, the tendency of quite a lot of the environmental movement. And instead, I think what we need to do is to fashion this a positive story to pull uh, people into the future with hope. So a very hopeful story. And, uh, you know, uh, environmentalists uh, like me tend to start by getting angry and looking at the negative. But what I have been talking about for a long time now is moving through the anger uh, into a a space of uh, creativity, a space of hope and of uh, problem solution. And that positive mind, which is also the mind that makes art, is the mind that allows you to come up with creative solutions. An angry mind never gets you to a creative solution. It's a, you can think of destructive things, but, uh, but not that creation. So, so uh, ecological civilization, I think. Uh, and then what does it mean? Well, I was uh, thinking, I, was, I looked at one of my poems the other day from 1995 or six, and I saw that I actually saw the phrase ecological civilization in there, uh, which pleased me because I'd forgotten that I'd used it a long time ago. I, was, I heard it, uh, for the first time, uh, I thought, when I got to China. Because, to go back to an earlier thread, they do have a 2,000-year view. Uh, they say there was a, a civilization here 2,000 or 2,500 years ago, and we need to make sure that our descendants 2,500 years from now have a clean uh, environment, a healthy planet, and can be healthy people. Uh, and that's their time-planning horizon. And the only way to get there is to have then a big civilizational story. And they're literally talking about an ecological civilization. Uh, and to get there, you need to do all the same things I was thinking. It's just that they're actually doing it. I was just talking about it in the West. Uh, they are um, getting together a lot of their best people, hundreds of intellectuals, uh, Chinese, and then bringing in Westerners to uh, imagine what it would look like to redesign industrial policy, agricultural policy, transportation policy, uh, economic theory, laws. And I was on a panel to help redesign the laws uh, in order to create a a holistic and integrated society that will uh, save civilization and and get you into the future. So for me, that is, um, although there are technical elements involved, as there are in uh, making Brian's light sculptures or in playing the piano, there's always technical element that you have to master to get involved as with law or with economics, but they become creative enterprises uh, when you say, how do we uh, take what we know and then create this opportunity uh, to tell a story that will draw people forward into a positive future? Yeah, listening to you both there, there is there's something that I, I'm having a little epiphany of, of my own in the fact that, you know, I think in, in one sense, we think of the law as constraining, but, you know, if you bring what 
you and Brian are saying together, James, you know, it's about setting the right rules and the stories and allowing the emergence to come from that. It's not about actually being in control, is it? Um, and yet, at the same time, we have that sort of carrot of control which resonates with people and, and is that culturally conditioned do you think you know so we have a sort of you know brexit scenario where it's all about taking back control but actually it's not is it it's about setting the right parameters and perhaps the right cultural narrative at the beginning and then embracing the uncertainty that would evolve and emerge from that yes i think so and what you want to do is to then uh to imagine as, as brian is talking about an open textured result so uh, you set good rules. So, for example, uh, you know you want to set rules uh, in the energy markets that create a flow of information and capital uh, towards renewable energy uh, and clean energy and energy that uh, people who don't have electricity, like the 350 million people in Europe, Asia who don't have it, uh, can get it. So you, you want to create those rules and then the flow of, uh, of good things can happen. The, the sadness of Brexit or what Donald Trump was doing in the United States is uh, when you close a civilization, it, it begins to collapse. When you, when you create rules that open it up, uh, it has a deep interaction with other people, other cultures, new ideas, then good things happen. Mm. Talking about, we're on a very positive note now, and we're talking about, you know, what are very old ideas, the idea that you travel and share information and that benefits all of us as a planet. What about the future for, for client Earth in terms of growing what you're doing, which sounds like it's already having a massive impact? And Brian, you've talked about that return on investment being something that's very important. And there's something, the one thing we almost haven't touched on in the podcast is this is, has been such an informed and rational debate. And yet for many people, there's there's a despair at the heart of how they feel about the environment. And those that are compassionate do feel almost like it's too late to do anything. And so perhaps could you list some of those successes that you've had and talk about going forward for Client Earth as a, as a model? Is it about recruitment? Is it about funding? Is it about raising people's awareness of what you're doing? How do we make sure this model grows so it can continue to have its effect? Well, I uh, really feel like in the last uh, couple of years, uh, we've turned a corner uh, again as a civilization uh, in that uh, awareness has come up uh, and it's come up uh, because millions of kids demonstrated in the streets. Uh, it's come up because we've been pressing corporations to take the risk of uh, climate change uh, as a material financial risk. Uh, it's come up because the cost now of building renewable energy is cheaper than the building fossil fuel energy uh, in every market in the world that I'm aware of. So there's a, a very powerful dynamic, I think, uh, emerging of uh, positive actions that if people begin to see, will encourage them and get them beyond that despair. I mean, just today, uh, the um, there was a, an announcement that China is going to stop buying Australian coal. Well, that's remarkable. That's 20% uh, of the Australian coal market. That's 10 billion uh, a year. That will begin to have knock-on effects and uh, you'll see Australian coal mines shut. Indeed, today there was an announcement that the last big new coal mine uh, in Australia 10 years ago called Blue Water. Called Blue Water, no doubt, because Blue Water was seen from the facility uh, at one point and never would be seen again. So it's memorialized in the, uh, in the, in the name. But uh, there was a, the announcement that that is closing. And uh, a few weeks ago, you have China saying it will be carbon neutral before 2060. Very quickly after that, Japan and South Korea said we will be carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, the Philippines said we'll not build any new coal-fired power stations. 
yesterday we heard that Pakistan says it will not build any new coal-fired power stations. So things are beginning to move uh, in the right direction. Now, uh, you still have to slay the dragons. You know, there are a lot of incumbent industries that will keep doing what they're doing for as long as they can get away with it. Uh, governments are very intertwined with them. The new companies uh, often don't have the capacity to get the dragons off the road. So then citizens have to take out their sword, you know, and slay the dragons, which is which is a lot of what we do. So all of our, uh, you know, we've stopped the building of new coal-fired power stations in Europe. You know, uh, you can't build one anymore. We'll stop you. You know, the, the sheriff has come to town. And what we want to do is do that in Asia. There are over 400 that are still on the drawing boards, uh, and there are 1,600 uh, that are built. And we're opening an office in Singapore in order to work with groups of citizens. We always work in partnership uh, all through Asia to prevent those new coal plants from being built, either by uh, attacking them directly or by changing the energy market rules and then begin to shut down simultaneously, begin to shut down all the existing coal-fired power stations, which we are doing in, in Europe. So uh, just a few weeks ago, a judge in Poland ordered uh, the company that owns the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in Europe, Belcher Tower Power Plant, to sit down with us and negotiate its closure. And much more work uh, needs to be done. I mean, the, the fossil fuel oil and gas industry has uh, what they call a plan B, which is looking ahead to the movement of things in what I think of as the right direction towards green energy. They want to take oil and gas and build a lot more plastics facilities for single-use plastics uh, where the oil and gas can be used as feedstock. Uh, and those facilities not only produce that crap, but they also produce as much emissions as a big coal-fired power station. So uh, the work needs to go on, but things are moving in the right direction. The economics finally uh, are on side and that means it's really possible to win, I think. I often say this is when, and Kate Rayworth says this, is when the money starts to think differently, everything else starts to follow, mm. think, think and feel differently. Yes, but the, the mistake that people then sometimes make, and I'm sure she doesn't, uh, is that then you can just count on the markets to take care of it, and, and you can't, mm. uh, that's no. because they will not move fast enough, which is why I was talking about slaying dragons. Uh, but but uh, without the money on your side, you can do nothing. But with the money on side, you have to slay the dragons and to keep the metaphor going, dig the ditches for the money to flow in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. I just want to go back to something that, uh, that touches on what Brian and James have been saying and brings, brings John to the fore, where he should be as our resident celebrity. So we have this uh, ongoing thing on the podcast where we like to refer to other comedians and their work because it really pleases John to hear us talk about how other, other comedians <laughs> are, are saying important and interesting things. And um, when you talk about stories now, stories are kind of you know the way we think about ethics. Robin Ince, the wonderful, brilliant Robin Ince, said in his his book um, about comedy that actually the thing that people laugh at it gives you a very quick shorthand to their ethics and their morals. And I'm just wondering, John, do you do you feel that is it is it like what what are people laughing at, and does that give you a view on how we can you know, move this story along? Yeah, I think laughter is 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 a release first and foremost, and you know, in quite crude comedy, it's always it's easiest to just build attention in the room by saying something horrific and then and then get a laugh from it. But broadly, I think societally, laughter is about acknowledging a truth that we all sort of know is out there. So you know, a lot of people, you could talk about the environment, and you can have that sigh of relief and laughter. Broadly, I use that to exploit my marriage and other people's marriages. And I like to see people in relationships enjoying the shared moment of me calling out the foibles and weaknesses of their partner for their own <laughs> enjoyment. But 
you know, with it with a tour pending for next year, this this uh, episode and this podcast broadly is, is setting my mind racing about. I mean, what environmental impact the tour will have, which is something that I think we'll discuss on a future episode. But yeah, what I want that show to be, and and how you do get that message across, and I think there's something about how you reach people who aren't engaged in this podcast, as passionate as we are about it. It has to reach people who wouldn't necessarily listen to a show of this type. And the work that you're doing has to challenge people's preconceptions of, you know, Brian, what art is and, you know, James, what our view of a lawyer is and what our view of what they could achieve. And and that's what I wanted to ask really about recruitment is what we do get off the back of this podcast. We get a lot of people, whatever the topic is, saying, well, I'm a student and I've just graduated in this. How do I get into this field and how do I get into this positive work? And I think that there'll be a generation of lawyers coming through who we, perhaps as a society, see as people who want to be rich and want to, you know, live in the city. But actually, I bet you will get emails off the back of this saying, well, I I want to study law and I want to get into Client Earth. So how do I do that? Yes, well, so Client Earth keeps growing. uh, So there are lots of, uh, there'll be lots of places for people. Uh, And when people are ready to actually look for a job, uh, there's a part of the website, uh, clientearth.org, lists uh, all all of the jobs. Uh, But uh, while you're studying, of course, the thing to do would be to study uh, environmental law. Uh, and not just environmental law. If you were interested in the environment, you might want to avoid thinking about company law, but it's turning out to be all of the company law, financial law, and even insurance law, all of these areas of money-related law turn out to be very powerful tools. So I would I would look at those too if, if I were studying law at this point. That's just, I mean, one of the things that I've been doing some some visioning work with a massive corporation, and one of the things we've talked about is that there will be a point where you won't be able to get insurance for things that damage the environment, whereas at the moment you can insure a coal-fired power station, for instance, against accidents. Quite soon it will be the case. It's like, well, we're of course not going to insure a coal-fired power station because it's just not in the story that we're thinking about. So, And once you stop getting insurance, you stop doing things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Brian, we we end on. Um, we always like to point out to our individual listeners to to empower them. What what can you do off the back of this podcast? You, you've um, you've obviously been instrumental in in funding Client Earth, but you, obviously at the heart of what you're doing and what you're saying about you know I've I've got this time left and I want to see something done. If you could speak to our listeners individually and say, here's something that you can do immediately that will make you feel better about the world we live in and that will have you more engaged and feeling more optimistic. What would you say? Well, what makes me feel better about the world that we're looking at is that there is so much activity going on. We're in the middle of the biggest social movement in human history, which is this drive to try to save the planet. And it it, it doesn't appear on the media radar very much because they've got the radar pointed in the wrong direction. They're consistently pointed at what governments are doing and what individual politicians are doing. And I'm not saying that none of that is important, but the real action is not happening there. They're sort of the tail that's being wagged. The dog is is actually people like us. It's individual. A few years ago, a friend of mine wrote a book called Blessed Unrest, mm. which was about environmental movements. And he, at that time, he was working in North America. He found that in USA alone, there were something like 200,000 groups, not individuals, groups. Some of them were small, four or five people. Some of them were very large, like Greenpeace and so on. But the fact is there were hundreds of thousands, millions of people thinking about this issue. And what 
I think is important is that there's a, a Russian writer called Alexei Yerchak, a historian, who wrote about the end of the Soviet Union. He wrote a book called Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. And this described that moment when suddenly the Soviet Union disappeared, happened overnight. And it turned out that the place didn't collapse into complete chaos because in the meantime, people had been building another reality. There were lots and lots of people who were making their own workarounds in a system that wasn't working anymore. So when, when that system disappeared, it didn't make that much difference. People just carried on with what they had already started doing. And I think we're in a sort of similar situation here now where we have the old carapace of power still in existence and still getting all the media attention. But underneath it, individuals and small groups of people are starting to work together and a very, very, very powerful change of orientation is happening. And there's another thing in that Alexei Yerchak book that I like very much, where he says revolutions happen in two phases. The first is when everybody realizes something is wrong. The second is when everybody realizes that everybody else realizes it too. Mm. And at that moment, something new gels. You suddenly realize that you're not the outsider. You're not the, the odd person out but you are the movement, you are the future. And I think this is a story that we will become more and more aware of, that actually it's happening. We are in the process of fighting it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy fight, but it means there's a lot of us doing it. And that is, I think, one of the positive things that comes out of the pandemic, if you can find positive things, is that I think that has been, for some people, a realisation of yeah. that story. It's like, oh, it's it's wrong, and now we all see it because the pandemic has brought to light so many inequalities. And I was really taken with that um, blessed unrest, uh, which is written by Paul Hawken, of course, and he's yeah, right. Martha Graham. And now, as everybody knows, I'm quite rude about poetry on this uh, <laughs> this podcast quite a lot uh, for comic purposes. But it, but if that is, comes from the Martha Graham poem, and the last four lines of that, which is, oh, there is no satisfaction, whatever, at any time. There is only the queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. And I think that what's interesting about it is like, People are always looking for, when do we get to the end? When will we have won this battle? And of course, what she's saying there, I think you never will. And yeah. that's, it's that blessed divine dissatisfaction that, that keeps you going, that actually makes you alive, realizing it's the journey, not the destination. And, and we're on this societal journey that, you know, that James was talking about with, with stories and ethics. And it's, it's a kind of, in a way, it's, it's very frightening, but sometimes, just sometimes, and you've helped me feel this this morning, it's, you think, what a wonderful time to be alive because yeah. everything is out there to be to be played for and we've got a role to play and isn't that isn't that a gift uh, that's that's a beautiful summing up actually thank you it always moves me when mark quotes poetry because i was about to say that the football result of this podcast would be poetry one prog nil uh, but <laughs> Mark, Mark, Mark has now overturned that by actually quoting poetry at the end. Well, could we make it two nil? Could we conclude with uh, a poem from our guest? I believe you have something ready for us, too, James. Oh, I'd love to share one, and um, it's a poem from a new book, uh, "Notes from a Mountain Village," which is about uh, living uh, part time for the last twenty five years in a tiny village in the in the French Pyrenees. It's called Twenty Seven. The water sideways lit like jelly in a sunbeam its surface transparent from this height. 
I counted 27 in the bend this early morning. They swam by last year's pomegranates, dry and orange-red on their tree-bare branches. And I wondered if our place as animals on earth won't depend on leaving the harsh pleasures we admire to stand in soft wonder with the trout. Mm, Thank you. That's really beautiful. I mean, you know, I've never been happier for Prog to be so roundly beaten in a competition than to have James Thornton give us a private rendition, the guy who set up probably the most important organisation in the world to hold us in rapture and uh, including the wonderful Brian Eno with the poem. You know, uh, uh, as, as a man devoted to Prog all my life, this is one I'm very happy to lose. So there we go. Um, that was that was the interview, as I say, recorded before Christmas. Uh, we've all had a chance since then to listen back to it. Mark and Ed, um, how, how do you feel about how that chat went? And has any of it sort of stayed with you and informed your thinking over the last few weeks? Yeah, definitely. I had a few uh, big thoughts about it, which was um, Brian's wrong about prog, obviously. <laughs> that was my favourite bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, but I, I, I think it was something James said which is uh, an angry mind is not creative. And that really struck mm. with me that actually, you know, the whole idea of falling in love with the world again and that being the most important thing and, and that your creativity f- flows from a place of optimism, which is something that, you know, uh, you know, Ed and I try and promote quite a lot, but it just kind of really resonated with me. You know, given how we started this, this episode with, you know, us all being rude to each other, I'd just like to say that I love you both very much. That's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say what I usually say when Lucy says uh, that she loves me. Cheers, mate. That's, that's my <laughs> stock response. That, that gives you as big a window as you need, I think, into what it's like to be married to me. Um, I very much liked the talk about sometimes just knowing that there are brilliant people out there doing brilliant things and, and what Brian was saying about, you know, there is a movement happening at the moment, whether it's, you know, later than it might have been. There are brilliant people uniting, and um, you say it a lot, Mark, about making sure that we're having more fun than they are. Just feel we're finally at that tipping point. We, you know, we we on this podcast, we have a laugh, don't we? And we, we share ideas, and you, you should sometimes take time to enjoy that and feel part of a community that is trying to do good. I think, and I think that's a bit I would pick up on is like it's a bit when James was talking about the sort of slaying of the dragons and the fact that actually we can't rely on the markets and it's something we get a lot in the inbox sort of saying well we're reliant on some systemic change but James seemed to be sort of suggesting that actually the role of the citizen sword is really important because you know in effect we are sort of trying to negotiate the surrender uh, of these large incumbent forces particularly in terms of fossil fuels and the coal-fired power stations that they're targeting. And so uh, we have got to be galvanised to slay the dragons. And I think the other thing is this idea of the role of art uh, as being absolutely fundamental in keeping a a utopian vision going. And I was reflecting on it in terms of a quote from the theatre director, Peter Sellers, who said, artists should be at the centre of a society keeping alive a utopian vision because society will not improve if the people envisioning a better society are politicians. And I think we can all be kind of fundamentally in agreement on that one. Uh, and I think that it, that's true. It's about these feelings, the emotions, the heartstrings, the gut instinct, all of the things that really shape our beliefs 
and the things that we hold most dear and cherish are, are often profoundly influenced by art and even prog. Yeah, and Eve, I mean, and who would have thought you would be having that conversation with essentially a lawyer? You know, who was also talking about corporate law and how to use it. I thought that was just the great, like, you know, it doesn't matter what your background or profession is, there is a way for you to get on the right side of this. I mean, it's fantastic. It did feel like what we wanted it to be, which was a sort of hour in the company of exceptional people. And I think Brian Eno is better known and his qualifications speak for himself. But if you haven't heard James speak, as I hadn't, he's an exceptional human being, isn't he? Clearly a gifted lawyer, but a caring person, a a Zen Buddhist and a poet. You do feel like there aren't many of these knocking about. And thank God we got to spend an hour chatting to him. So thank you for, for listening. And I have to say thank you, my address book does not have people like that in it so to to both of you who are responsible for bringing us that show thank you to you too so um if you want to send us any thoughts or reflections on the last hour and we always welcome your um suggestions for things we should be talking about in future uh, and we just welcome your thoughts and frankly your company so send us a message and here's how you can do it you can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. So more from us next week. As ever, have a wonderful week. Look after yourselves, each other, and the planet. And from myself, Mark, and Ed, cheerio. Cheerio.